There's an old adage that I found to be, in some sense, unfortunately true. And that adage goes like this, that every person you meet is either someone who has come out of a season of suffering, is in a season of suffering, or is about to enter into a season of suffering. Essentially saying that suffering is such a normal, common part of this life that everyone you meet has either just recently suffered, is currently suffering, and if life is really, really good, it's, it's coming. Suffering's coming. And that might sound bleak, that might sound pessimistic, but we are told in the scriptures in Acts 14 that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulations are a necessary part of this life. No one enters the kingdom of God but through many tribulations. And so what that tells us is that there really is never a time when it is not relevant to be given hope for hard times. It is always relevant for a church to discuss suffering and for a church to give each other hope in the midst of suffering. And by God's grace, we have the opportunity to do that with our sermon text today. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We are going to continue reading through 1 Samuel, preaching through 1 Samuel as we see David again is on the run. David running from his own people, from his own king. God is going to humble David. God is going to bring David into some hard times. And then he's going to deliver David. And we are going to learn about God and about how that applies to us today. So 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 10. We will read the rest of the chapter and just a little bit into chapter 22. I would encourage you to follow along with me in verse 10, for these are the very words of God. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Asia said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Asia, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Ashish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down from there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. Well, let us stop there. David is in so much danger that he has gone behind enemy lines. David has escaped into Gath to try to hide out there, hoping he will go unrecognized and unknown. Now, we see how David's situation is truly terrifying. Like, David is truly desperate. How desperate does he have to be to go to the Philistines for cover? And by the way, he's not just in any old Philistine town. 
He had to go to the one nearest to him, which just so happens to be Gath. And what's, what is Gath known for? Who remembers? What makes Gath memorable? Who's from Gath? Goliath. So David has gone into Gath, the very hometown of the great Philistine warrior that he destroyed, that he killed, that he humiliated. Oh, and by the way, what has David brought into Gath? Remember last week? Goliath's sword that he cut Goliath's head off with. So David has taken Goliath's own sword that decapitated Goliath into Goliath's own hometown to hide, to seek safety. David is distressed. He is terrified. He's without hope. He's without options. God has brought David very, very low. And unfortunately for David, his plan to go unrecognized doesn't work. He is quickly recognized as some kind of king. They don't call him king of Israel, but they call him king of the land. So David's fame is so known because of not just of Goliath, but all of his military victories up to this point, that he is clearly like the next in line. He is some kind of leader over this territory. The, the king of the land has come into Gath. They recognize him. This is the guy that after he killed our hero, they sang songs about how he's even greater than Saul. And he's here hiding out. So what do they do? They do what anyone would do. They capture him and bring him to the king. Look what we found. I don't know what their plans were him for. Torture him, kill him, make him a slave, make him a servant. We don't know. But they bring him to Ashish, the king. And so David, running out of time, has, running out of options, does the last thing that he knows he can maybe try to get him out of this. And this happens all the time. When someone goes to court after committing a horrible murder and their guilt is obvious, what's usually the only line of defense? Well, we're just going to try to get you out of prison by pretending you're insane. Pretending you are not competent to stand trial and you can go to a sane asylum and hoping that will be better than prison. That's the route David goes with. It's his only option. He pretends to be a madman. He leaves scratches and marks on the door. He's spitting and drooling. He's acting crazy. David is pretending to be a homeless man who's out of his mind and it works. He goes to Ashish and Ashish says, look, guys, we have enough crazy homeless people in Gath as it is. I don't know why you brought this crazy homeless man to me. My hands are already full with crazy homeless people. Get him out of my sight. So it works. David pretends to be crazy, which is, again, just another example of that righteous deception we've been talking about all the way through 1 Samuel. He pretends to be something that he's not, and it works. He is released. And so what does he do? He escapes to a famous hillside, which is near Judah, a little outside of Judah, and there's this hillside where we think it is, is this large area of hills that have multiple caves, very large caves that many, many people could house in. And there's one that apparently is popular enough to be named, the Cave of Adullam. And so David takes refuge in this cave just outside of Judah. And we don't know how this has happened, but somehow word has gotten out that David has escaped from Gath and that he's hiding out in the cave of Adullam. And so David's family goes to meet him there. And why would they do that? Well, they would do that because they inherently know that they're in danger. Anytime a human being becomes an enemy of a powerful political group, everybody knows that the only person more in trouble then the actual person of interest is, those, is that person's loved ones. Like if the CIA or the FBI were coming after me, you want to know who's in more danger than me? The people I love, my family. That's leverage, that's collateral. So David's family knows if Saul's trying to kill David, he's, he's coming looking for us. 
He wants us just as much as he wants David. We are his ticket to David. So they are now on the run. And so David's family meets him in the cave of Adullam, but they don't come alone. Apparently, there's a lot of people in Israel who are not happy with how things are being run. The text mentions for a variety of different reasons. Some of them are in great debt with the state, but some of them are more generally distressed or who are bitter in soul. So there's a, a, a small contingency of Israelites who either owe some great debt, which apparently they find unfair, to Saul, or they are just distressed at the spiritual economic decay of Israel, or they're bitter in soul. They're, they're, they're just angry. These are people who are politically angry. So we have these kind of political refugees now who said, hey, hey, you guys are going to David. We, we want to come. We're, we're, we're sick of how things are going here as well. And so David now has this little resistance army on his hands, right? He goes to the cave and it's not just his family who shows up, but 400 people ready to turn against Israel has shown up with him. So David has kind of become the commander of this little miniature resistance army. He goes from being hungry and alone and destitute to nearly being killed or enslaved by the Philistines. And now things are turning around for David. He's the leader of this little resistance army. And by the way, this very ancient story has become the archetype for many famous stories and movies and books. Most famously, Star Wars. Right? Star Wars is modeled after this. How does the original Star Wars movie begins? With a small, fed-up resistance army who are kind of on the outskirts of the galaxy trying to resist that evil empire led by that evil Darth Vader. Right? We've got this powerful political force with an evil man at the helm and a small little fed-up resistance army. You see, and it makes its way into other movies and films too. This is a, an entertaining story. David and his little resistance army versus the empire versus Saul versus Saul's army. Now, there's one other important detail that we read. David, now that David has, is beginning to turn the corner from the uh, defense or, or from the victim to the offender. He's beginning to transform from the hunted to the hunter, from the, 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 the man preyed upon to the one who will pray. He knows, I don't want my family involved in this right now. Like We got a bunch of men bitter in soul here. We got a bunch of men ready to, to go to war with Israel if we have to. I don't want my family involved in this. So he wants to seek shelter for his family. And so he crosses into enemy territory again. He goes outside of the people of Israel and he goes to Moab, to the Moabites. And the text very nonchalantly, very quickly, tells us that, yeah, they gladly housed David's family and protected them while David got things in order. And why would they do that? The Moabites are not friendly with Israel, at least not at this point. Why would they do that? Well, the text doesn't tell us, so we're forced to speculate. So I'm not preaching the word of God right now. This is pure speculation, but the most common reason given and what I prefer is keep in mind that David actually has Moabite blood running through his veins. David is the descendant of his father who is one of the descendants of Ruth, the Moabite. And so I think that perhaps the Moabites have maybe a somewhat of a kindred spirit to David and his family, knowing that they have somewhat of a blood connection. That's what we anticipate. But we don't know. For some reason, under the power and grace of God, uh, these enemy territory, they decide to help David out. So David is humbled. He is brought lowly. He is brought to this place of fear, this place of desperation. And then he is delivered out of it. 
And this is a significant moment in David's life, which is why I didn't want to preach this with the text last week. This moment, especially his time in Gath, is very significant to David. Now, why do I say that? Why would I claim that it's so significant to David? The reason it's so significant is because David wrote two psalms about this moment. Two separate psalms David wrote about his time in Gath. So we see how influential it was on David that later on in his life he was still reflecting and meditating and writing inspired music and poetry about these moments. One of the psalms he wrote is Psalm 56, uh, but that focuses very narrowly just on his arrest. And Psalm 56 is all about when David gets arrested by the servants of Ashish. And it is in that moment that David talks in Psalm 56 about how he was terrified, but he cried out to the Lord. And even though his situation was horrible, he had faith, he believed that the Lord would deliver him. So I want us to look today at the second psalm he wrote about this because it is the all-encompassing psalm. It's not just the psalm about his arrest, but it's about his arrest, his time in Gath, and God's deliverance over him. And here's why I want to turn there. I have the benefit of doing the same thing this week that we did last week. Last week, my job was made very easy because 1 Samuel 21 was taken up by the Lord Jesus. And so it was Jesus who got to preach the sermon for us last week. And this week, now we get to have something similar. If you want to know, well, what is the end of 1 Samuel 21 about? What do I learn about God from that? What should I take from that? How should I apply that to my life? I say, let David tell you. David has written an inspired commentary on 1 Samuel 21. So if you would please turn to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34. And let's let David preach the sermon for us this morning. Let's let David tell us how to respond, what to learn of God in this text. Before we read the whole psalm together, I want you to know, how do I know that David wrote Psalm 34 about this time in Gath? How do I know that Psalm 34 is about this? Well, because this is one thing that I want to clarify because many Christians sometimes get confused. Many psalms will have a transcript before the psalm begins. And those little transcripts are inspired. Those are actually in the ancient manuscripts we possess. Those are part of the Bible. The reason that confuses people is because your Bible will also have headers. And headers are not inspired. Headers are not part of the Bible. That is what the Bible translators put in to help break things up and to help you find things. And just like verses, right? Chapters and verses are not in the Bible. Human beings added those later on because they're helpful tools to help us maneuver through the Bible. Headers, chapters, verses, they are not in the Bible. But these transcripts are actually, this is biblical text. This is God-inspired text. And that's why in our call to worships, I will read those. I will read those before when we read through the Psalms. So let's just, before we read the whole thing together, let me just read, because there's one thing that needs to be clarified, the transcript of Psalm 34. That Psalm 34 begins of this, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So we know what this is about. This is about David pretending to be crazy in Gath and that delivered him from Gath. Now the reason I want to highlight this though is because there's one confusing little element of this and you may have picked on it. Who's Abimelech? Right? David wasn't with Abimelech, he was with Ashish. Uh, let me just clarify that really quickly. There is no problem here. Uh, Abimelech is a title for a king or a ruler. 
And oftentimes in the ancient world, titles were used synonymously with names. You know what's the best example of that? Pharaoh. You read through your Old Testament, it doesn't say the Pharaoh. It doesn't say Pharaoh in his name. They just call him Pharaoh, even in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes, For this is what God says to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh is not his name, that's his title. There are different, different Pharaohs, right? There's Ramesses, there's other Pharaohs. So the title can be used as the name or, or used as a title. So Abimelech is just the title. It is used as a personal name in some certain circumstances, but it's just a general title. So it's just saying that, that Ashish was the Abimelech of Gath, right? Like Ramesses was the Pharaoh of Egypt. So there's no conflict there. So we know what Psalm 34 is about. It's about our text. So let's let David tell us about our text, beginning in verse 1 with me. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. For the Lord redeems the life of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David has been brought low in his escape from Ashish. He is up to this point, before, before the, these recent events of 1 Samuel, David was experiencing nothing but the blessings of God. David is the one who slayed Goliath. No one in Israel had the courage to even stand up to him, and David slayed him. First try, first throw. And then after that, David is celebrated in the streets. The beautiful women are flooding the streets singing songs about David's success and victory. And then after that, he marries into a royal line. He's now prince. He's now royal. And then after that, he becomes a military commander and has victory in battles everywhere he goes. And his fame is only increasing ever more. He's become so famous, even people in Gath recognize him the second he crosses into their territory. And remember, they didn't have Facebook back then. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Instagram. They would, went long periods of time without ever seeing the face of David, but David's face stuck in their mind because he is glorious. 
He is exalted. He is praised. And yet here, the champion of Israel, the prince of Israel, is pretending to be an insane homeless person, spitting all over his own beard to get out of enemy territory alive. God has humbled him. God has brought him low. And I suspect that God knew that these are the very trials and tribulations that David needed in order to be a great king. I suspect that if all David ever experienced was nothing but praise and essentially worship, adoration, victory, and success, it would have corrupted him. God knew what David needed and he needed humbling. He needed to be reminded of his dependency upon the Lord. He needed to be reminded that he was not in control, the Lord is. And so God put him into a terrifying, distressing, painful circumstance for David to learn something about God. Is this not often what our trials and tribulations do? We learn some of the deepest things we know about God from some of our most painful moments in life. We draw nearer and closer to God than we ever do in blessing when we are going through times of cursing. So God has humbled David. He has brought him low. And as David reflects on that humiliation, as he reflects on that difficult time in his life and he writes Psalm 34, how does he respond? What does David learn of God? In other words, like I said before we read, what does David tell us to see in 1 Samuel 21? Well, let me give you three things that David learned about God through his trial. Three things that, Dave, that opened David's mind to who God is through his trial. The first thing that David learned is that God is near to his people. God is near to his people. Look at verse 18 with me of Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This is not the only verse that says this. It's my favorite one. But this is a theme all throughout Psalm 34 that God is near to David. He's near to his people. And the way that it, the Psalm 34 normally describes this is through the anthropomorphic language. Remember we talked about that in a previous sermon when God is given human attributes to help us understand him. The Psalm 34 anthropomorphically describes God as hearing David. Verse 5, verse 4, verse 17, all throughout this psalm is this, the Lord heard me, he heard my cries, he heard me and delivered me, he heard me and saved me, he heard me and helped me. The Lord is near to David, he hears David, he's present with David, he is near to his people. David learned that. And may this also, just almost as a side note, be an important reminder for all of us to not neglect prayer. This psalm, in a very subtle way, is very much about prayer. David constantly, I cried out to the Lord, and that's what he heard, and that's why he delivered me, because he's with me, he's near to me, and he hears my cries. He knows the desires of my heart. I don't know what season of life you're in. I don't know if you're going through something difficult right now. I hope I would know if you are. I don't know what's in your future, but I can remind you of this especially in your darkest days, especially in your hardest days, you cannot neglect to cry out to the Lord. Pour your heart out to God. And when you do that, to believe that He is near to me and He hears me. 
In other words, another way of thinking about this first principle that God is near to his people is David is recognizing that God has not abandoned me. God has not forsaken me. Why is that important? Because in our seasons of trials, that's what it feels like. Right? Don't you think David was tempted to feel rejected by God? God lifted him up. He made him the hero of Israel. He killed Goliath. He, he's winning all of his victories. He married into a, a royal line. And then God cuts that out and sends him to Gath. Has God rejected David? Has God just, I, I'm sick of David. I'm done. Send him to the enemies. David could have interpreted his circumstances that way, but he didn't. He did not interpret the fact that my world is upside down. It's falling apart, but that does not mean that God is angry with me, that God rejects me, that God doesn't love me. To the contrary, he is near to me in these moments. He does not despise the brokenhearted. He is near to the brokenhearted. God does not despise your broken heart. It's very easy when you're going through something difficult for the faux piety of the culture around us to remind you that, you know, it's not as bad as it could be. You should be grateful for what you do have. You're going through this hard season. It could be worse. There are people who have it worse. You should be grateful for what you do have. Now, there is some truth to that. Don't get me wrong. There is some truth to that. But you want to know what I hear in that? God despises the broken heart. Your heart is broken, and what's God telling you? It shouldn't be broken. You still have so much. Why is your heart broken? Why aren't you more content? Why aren't you more happy? That would be God despises your broken heart. But God does not despise the brokenhearted. He's near to them. Things in life happen, and sometimes they're hard. And yeah, they could be worse. And you can comfort yourself by remembering that they could be worse. But it's okay to have a broken heart. It's okay. It's okay, as the text says, to be crushed. It's okay. God does not despise that. On the contrary, he is near to you in those moments. God is near to the brokenhearted. That is when he draws close to us. And that is when we need to use that opportunity to draw near to him. God is near to his people. That's what David learned, but he learned something else. Point number two, he didn't just learn that God was near to me, but God ultimately, his ultimate purpose was to deliver me. He wasn't just like a therapist here to listen to me rant. He actually wanted to fix this. David learned that God saves his people. God is near to his people, but God saves his people. Look again, again at verse 18 with me. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is not interested in merely being your therapist in hard times. He's interested in delivering you from your hard times. By the way, verse 19, so much for the prosperity gospel. <laughs> the more righteous you are, the better your life will go. The more faith you have, the better your life will go. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Jesus was the most righteous person that ever lived, and yet we can look at his life and say many were his afflictions. You are going to have afflictions. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have persecution. It's a part of this life. I can't make it go away. But God wants to deliver you from it. He wants to put you in this moment so he can save you from those moments. He's our savior. And that's why this is repeated, not just in verse 18 and 19, but all throughout the psalm. In verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 17, in verse 22. 
that God delivers us. He saves us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He is our deliverer. God saves us from these circumstances. Now, it's important to remember how we read this as New Testament Christians. Dave is reading this through primarily carnal circumstances. David is saying, I was physically in Gath, afraid and distressed, and God physically saved me from Gath, saved me from Ashish, and delivered me to Adullam. He's thinking primarily physical. Now, I do think it has physical application in the New Testament. I do think that when we are going through hard external circumstances, we trust and pray and believe that God will use that for our good, and then once its purpose is over, save us from it, deliver us from it. But more important than that, so that is true. I want to give that to you. It's a gift from God's word. <laughs> when you go through suffering, here's your gift. God wants to deliver you from it. He doesn't want you to wallow in it. He wants to deliver you. That's, that's a gift. I don't want to pass over that too quickly, but I do think our New Testament lenses want us to rejoice in the greatest suffering we experience, the greatest affliction and oppression we experience, which is not physical, but spiritual. You know what's worse than Ashish? Satan. You know what's worse than being a slave to an evil empire? Being a slave to your sin. And God redeems you from that. In Christ Jesus, God has saved you from that. He is your deliverer. And this big picture salvation that he saves me from sin, he saves me from Satan, he saves me from death, we argue from that to the small. And he wants to deliver me from my present circumstances. Why? Because he is my deliverer who has delivered me from the greatest circumstances, the greatest affliction and oppression I can imagine. And here's why I want us to emphasize that, because I believe that that is the most comforting thing in the world. I really do. I don't say that hyperbolically. I'm not being dramatic. That's the most comforting thing in the world, that your sins have been forgiven, that you're going to be resurrected. There's nothing more comforting than that. That is why we sing one of my favorite hymns that we sing in this church is It Is Well. And it's kind of an audacious hymn. You think about it? No matter what I'm going through, I sing to God, it is well with my soul. Doesn't that sound crazy? Your children die. It is well with my soul. You become a prisoner of war. It is well with my soul. How could someone be so audacious to sing... It is well with my soul, even in bad times. Why is that not crazy? Well, because the song emphasizes something. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. What's the greatest comfort you have in your worst circumstances? Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. And there's no sword on earth that can take that away from you. This also shows up, uh, you, I talk a lot from this pulpit about being a Reformed church. There's, our church holds to kind of loosely two different Reformed confessions, the Westminster Confession and the Second London Baptist. But there have been other Reformed traditions that have their own confessions. For example, our elder Marvin comes from the Christian Reformed tradition. And they have what's called the three forms of unity that they hold to. And they have a catechism 
Just like the Westminster has a catechism, they have a catechism, and catechisms are for teaching, for education, to teach children, to teach even adults about the faith. And the first question of what's called the Heidelberg Catechism, this is a Reformed Catechism, you know it's the first question? It's this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What gives you comfort in this life? What gives you hope? What gives you comfort? What gives you peace, even in death? And you want to know what the answer is? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. How's that for an answer? My one comfort, both in life and death, is that I belong wholly to my faithful Savior who has freed me from my sins and shepherds over me like a good father. David was reminded of that, 1 Samuel 21, that God is our Savior. He's our deliverer. He is near to his people. He saves his people. But point number three, very important, he avenges his people. He hears us. He saves us. He avenges us. He is our great capital A avenger. Look at verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Look at verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What's another one of David's comforts here? The people responsible for my horrible conditions, the people responsible who are doing evil against me, who have put me in this position, God will judge them. God will not forget this. He will not only deliver me from this, he will judge my oppressors. He will avenge me. He will vindicate me. David knows God will not sweep this under the rug. He's righteous and just. He avenges his people. Those who put their trust in Christ, they will not be condemned. The book of Romans tells us, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Jesus Christ, all condemnation is gone from you. But if you do not belong to Jesus Christ, if you hate Christ, if you hate the righteous, you will be condemned. You will be judged. And this is not old-fashioned, mean, fire and brimstone teaching. This is a comfort for God's people. It is comforting to know that God will avenge us both in this life, but primarily in the next. This is of great comfort to us. I love, there's a rhetorical question asked in Genesis 18.25. I would encourage you to memorize this rhetorical question. And whenever you're doubting, whenever you're confused about what's happening in the world, you need to ask yourself this rhetorical question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Do you, do you trust God with the universe? Do you trust him? Is he, is he going to do good by us? Do, do you really believe that at the end of time, the one who is capable of making everything and is sovereign over everything is going to leave some loose ends untied? 
Or do you believe that the just judge of all the earth will do right? He will. He'll do right by us. He'll do right by himself. It doesn't always happen when we want it to or how we want it to. But especially in the resurrection and the great day of judgment, he will avenge and vindicate us. The judge of all the earth will do right. So what are the three things we learn from 1 Samuel 21 with David's help? We learn that God is near to his people, that God saves his people and God will avenge his people. And I'm hoping that you agree with me that that's really good news. I'm hoping that gives you some foothold for comfort as soon as you enter into your next tribulation. But I think it asks this important question about application. This news is so good, what do I do with it? How do I, how do I possibly pay God back for this? David was, was revealed these things about God and his suffering. So how did David respond? Like, God delivered him. What did David do? Did he just say thanks? Like, what did he do? Well, David does not hide that from us. So not only does David telling us what we learn about God from 1 Samuel 21, he's telling us how to apply that. And here are two applications to those three points. The first one is very simple. What does God want from you since he is near to you and he delivers you and he saves you? And he avenges you. What does he want from you? The first part is very simple. Worship. Worship. Worship the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. You hear those, those, those words of bless and praise? This is worship. We boast in the Lord. We are glad in the Lord. We praise the Lord. But notice, he doesn't just leave it to my personal worship of God. That's not enough for David. David is going to go home and he's going to worship the Lord. He's going to praise the Lord. He's going to think of the Lord. He's going to worship him Monday through Saturday. Or for him, it'd be Sunday through Friday. He's going to worship the Lord. But personal worship isn't enough for him. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David's response to the goodness and faithfulness of God that he learned was to worship him both privately and corporately. God is so worthy of worship, it is not enough for me to sit in my room and worship him. He's deserving of more than that. Let's all come together and let's worship him together. Corporate worship is what God wants. He wants us, I have seen, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Maybe you haven't. So come to church with me. Let me tell you about it. Let me help you magnify God. You can help me magnify God. So how do you respond to those three points? Worship the Lord and come to church. Make boast of the Lord, magnify the Lord and come to church. And notice, notice the important principle though. When do we bless the Lord? Verse 1. At all times. Not just when the deliverance happens. Before the deliverance happens. What, that's what David learned. David learned, God delivered him, and, and he's learned so much about God. And David went back retroactively and learned, you know what? God was worthy of my praise even when I was in Gath. God wasn't just worthy of my praise in Adullam. He was worthy of my praise in Gath. This is the heart of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, In everything give thanks, for it is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Because we know God is near to us and he's using this for our good and he has not abandoned us, we can worship him even in the hard times. 
In my opinion, no one has said it more beautifully or poetically than the great Augustine of Hippo. Hear what he says, his commentary on verse, just the first part of verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. He asks this, when shall you bless the Lord? When he blesses you? When the goods of this world abound? When you have great abundance of grain, oil, wine, of gold and silver, and servants and cattle? When this mortal health remains unwounded and sound? When all that are born to you grow up and nothing is withdrawn by premature death? Happiness wholly reigns in your house and all things overflow around you. Then shall you bless the Lord? No, but at all times. Both when he gives them, bless. And when he takes them away, bless. For it is he that gives and it is he that takes away. But himself from him that blesses him, he takes not away. That last little part was a bit of a tongue twister. What is he saying? God gives you blessings and you should praise him for that. But God will also take those blessings away from you, but it's ultimately for your good, so you should praise him for that. But there's one thing God will never take from you. Himself. Why, point number one, he is near to his people. Why can you continually praise the Lord even when your blessings have been removed because you still have Christ? And we can confess, those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we can confess with the Apostle Paul that if I have Christ, I count all other things rubbish. You can give me Christ and take everything from me and I still consider it gain. We bless the Lord at all times. We worship the Lord at all times in every season, both privately and corporately. And then the other way we respond to those three amazing points, that God is near to his people, that he delivers his people, that he avenges his people, is simply through this, obedience. Does this not make God worthy of our obedience? Look at verse 11 with me. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he hears and his ears towards their cry. So notice as David is reflecting upon what God has done from him, something has caused his spirit to turn to us and say, guys, come be holy with me. Let's turn from evil. Let's walk away from evil. Let's be obedient. Something in how God delivered him spawned within him this desire to be obedient to God. God's faithfulness spurs us into obedience. So if you're the kind of person, like you're like, Colin, this is confusing. You've given me three points and then two points. Let me summarize it with one sentence. What, what is 1 Samuel 21 about with David's help? It's about this. The goodness and faithfulness of God gives us reason to bless him and obey him no matter our circumstances. What do we learn from David's captivity in Gath and then return to Adjulam? What do we learn? We learn this, that the goodness and faithfulness of God gives us reason to bless him and obey him no matter our circumstances. So in conclusion, I, I want to read to you the lyrics of a hymn. I chose not to sing them because I don't know it. But someone wrote a hymn based on Psalm 34. And I think it says it better than I can. Let's conclude with the lyrics of the great hymn through all the changing scenes of life. Though all the, through all the changing scenes of life in trouble and in joy 
The praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ. Of his deliverance I will boast, till all that are distressed from my example comfort take and charm their griefs to rest. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, with me exalt his name. When in distress to him I called, he to my rescue came. The hosts of God encamp around the dwellings of the just. Deliverance he affords to all on his succor trust. Oh, make but trial of his love. Experience will decide how blessed they are and only they who in his truth confide. Fear him, ye saints, and then you will have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight. Your wants shall be his care. 